name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you will notice in your bulletin, um, the area there where you can write notes for the sermon, you'll notice I've left you lots of room. (laughs) Because pride and humility really doesn't need a whole outline to it. Um, I, I think we're very familiar with those two words. Our gospel um, text is the continuing sermon, actually, um, from Jesus' Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. It's very clear when we read that particular sermon that he gives when he starts off with the Beatitudes about blessed are the poor in spirit, etc., etc. We see that in that whole area, that whole sermon, which is between verses 21 and 48, really, when you look at that area um, where Jesus is speaking to the crowds that have gathered, what you see there is he is talking counterculture to the people of his day. He is saying things that do not go along with the culture in which he is living. One of the things that we know in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so we think about that. That's not something that we would say, oh, I'm so glad that I'm poor in spirit. We might not have understanding about that. Also, the most counterculture statement is, I think, is when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you hear that, none of us enjoy persecution. I do not enjoy persecution. I don't like people to put me down. I don't like people to criticize me. I don't like to do something and somebody come up to me and say, well, you know, you sort of fell short on that. None of us like that sort of thing. But what if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake? What if we go through trials and tribulations for the sake of the gospel, for righteousness? Because you notice what it says there is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The question that you have to ask yourself is reward. When do I get my reward? This is a natural thing that we all feel. So even today in the 21st century, everything that Jesus is saying, is also counterculture. It does not fit in with our culture. John Stott says that all of the Sermon on the Mount is counterculture. Our ancient church father, uh, Thomas Aquinas, he says the whole process of forming the life of a Christian is found in the Sermon on the Mount which we've been looking at for the past few weeks. We've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, this particular section. But the section of the Sermon on the Mount from verses 21 to 48, starting with what we read today, going all the way to 48, in the words of Christ, he's giving further explanation of the interpretation of the law, the law of Moses, the law that the people were living after. And what he meant specifically by the verse in verse 20, 
the verse right before the verse we read today in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. When you hear that, and the people of, of that day, when they heard that, let me tell you a little bit about what they were thinking. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, they do everything. They do everything exactly right. They follow the law, the letter of the law. They don't break the law. I was just reminded, um, just the second, I was thinking about Paul, uh, when he talks about himself in Philippians. You know what he says in there? He says, I was perfect. I, basically, I never broke the law. And so what Jesus is saying to the people is, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Well, how? How can we exceed perfection? Jesus is explaining to them, it's not what you do. It's who you are. It's who you are in your heart because God judges the motivation of our heart and he also looks inside of each one of us for the image of his son. If he does not see the image of his son, then he sees us as an enemy. God judges the motivation of our hearts. He sees who we are, and he sees the image of his Son in us when we accept Jesus as our Savior. That may be as an adult. When the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes to live in us, that might be when we're baptized as a baby. When the Spirit of God starts to do his work in our heart, our heart, which is dark and hard, without the Spirit, then all of a sudden becomes supple. And we start to grow more and more into the image of the Son of God. But we are all created in the image of God, but we don't always act like Him, do we? It's that likeness part that sort of gets us caught off guard. Sometimes... We don't act like God at all. The scribes and the Pharisees, like I said, obeyed every law. But their hearts were not righteous towards God. Their hearts was all about getting it right, doing it right, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, being perfect, looking perfect, having it all together, not letting anybody see that we're falling short. Letting everybody see that we're doing just fine. Thank you very much. Well, I heard you had a hard time with your business. Nope, that's all good. Well, I know, but what about your children? Nope, they're fine. What about your wife? Oh, no, she's great. What about your husband? Well, <laughs> depends on who's saying that, I guess. But that's, that is what we do. In the natural. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. 
what I'd like to do is bring the Matthew text and the Corinthian text that we read today together. So I need you to bear with me. I think that we can do that with two words, pride and humility. Pride. Let's look at the definition of these words so that we can understand a little bit about uh, what, what I'm talking about. Pride, as defined in the Oxford Dictionary, says this. The first of the seven deadly sins being the inordinate love of one's excellence. Let me read that one more time. The first of the seven deadly sins, deadly sins, being the inordinate love of one's own excellence. Have you ever just been just proud as punch? It's something that you've done, and you just sort of, you know, and then nobody else notices it. Have you ever noticed that? And so you feel like maybe you need to tell them. Maybe, maybe you missed this one particular thing. <laughs> but, you know, and God did it. God did it. But let me just point that out to you. Um, I think we've all been sort of guilty of that. Let me give you a little bit of history also about the origin of pride. And you can find it if you, if you want to um, look this up later. In Ezekiel 28, this is where we get an understanding of who Satan is. His name was Lucifer. And he was the most beautiful of all of the created angels. He was called the covering cherub. And he had jewels all over him. He was the most beautiful, unbelievable-looking angel that God had ever created. And what he did was he covered the throne of God. Now just imagine that. You have God, you have his glory that shines out from him. And when it would hit those jewels on Lucifer, it would reflect that glory into all of the universe. Well, one day, Lucifer saw himself. And he realized how beautiful he was. And he realized also that he wanted to be God. And he was filled with pride. And the scripture says, and he sinned. And with that, he was cast down to the earth. In Revelation 12, verses 4 through 9, we see that that war acted out. Where he is cast down and a third of the angels in heaven, created angels in heaven, went with him. And they're called demons. But in him was the origin and source of pride. When he slithered into the garden and he cast before Eve this same desire to know good and evil, to be like God. When he cast this before her, once Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, once this happened, then they, as you know, we read in in Genesis, in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, the Spirit of God that had been breathed into Adam left. And Adam 
and Eve died. Because pride, which is the source of of Satan's whole motivation, became a part of humanity. And everything that he did, everything that that, um, he did, Adam did, everything they did had to do with how they wanted to fulfill the desires of their heart and how they wanted to fulfill the desires of their flesh. Pride brings death. Pride brought death to Satan. Pride brought death to Adam and Eve. Humility, on the other hand, was actually never thought of as a positive thing in the culture in which Jesus was was living in. When somebody said to you, oh, Greg, you're such a humble soul. When somebody said that to you, you would say, oh, man, I'm insulted. Nathan, you're such a humble man. (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) Then that would be an insult. That would be an insult. Whereas if I said to these guys, man, y'all are amazing, y'all are awesome, y'all are up there on the top. Well, yes, of course, that is true. Because that is really inside of us, that's our first thought. That's not our second thought, that's our first thought. Because we do have that sin nature. Unfortunately, it's still there and it'll be there until we die, until we die. And we we appear before the Lord. But because of the Holy Spirit coming to live in that place that is just for the Spirit inside of each of us, we now have the ability and the potential to be humble. Jesus brought with him humility that was positive. That is something that we also know is the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness and kindness and humility or gentleness and meekness, faithfulness and self-discipline. This is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the character, the very character of God lives inside of us in its potential. Because in the seed of the Holy Spirit that was planted in our heart that changed it from a dark hardness into ground that could could have that seed planted in there to produce the fruit of the Spirit, the very character of Jesus himself, we now have the potential to be humble, to be truly humble. And there again, that's counterculture even in the 21st century. I think that Paul addresses the heart of what Jesus is saying in his Sermon on the Mount in his letter to the Corinthians. In the very opening part of this letter, in chapter 1 of Corinthians, we see where he commends the Christians in Corinth, and he affirms in them that in everything you were enriched in Christ, in all speech and all knowledge... He then goes on to talk to them about the problem. And this is what the problem is in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. He says, Now I mean this 
Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, who is Peter. I am of Christ. He says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Then he goes on to speak to them a little bit further down about foolishness. The very foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest man on earth, he says. It's not the wisdom of our mind and our great thinking and our great ways that's going to cause us to succeed. It's the wisdom of God. And he addresses that in verse 30 of chapter 1. He says, but by his doing, talking about God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, here it is, who became to us the wisdom of God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And just as it is written, let no man boast, but let him boast in the Lord. So our wisdom, our humility, is found in Jesus Christ. Our pride is a daily duty of seeing it, confessing it, and crucifying it every day. He concludes this section, like I said, by reading that Jesus has become for us the very wisdom, humility, humility. What is real humility? When you think of that word, you probably have all sorts of images that occur in your mind. Have you ever been in a situation where you've worked yourself rather hard? You've done a lot of work, especially in the church. I mean, you've been there at the crack of dawn until the sun went down. You did all the arranging. You did all the planning. I mean, you even did, brought all the stuff that needed to be brought. And at the very end of the work time, somebody walks in and has some sort of special thing that they've brought. And, of course, everybody's gathered there that time. And all of a sudden, somebody says, Oh, Jane, Thank you so much. It's just wonderful. And Jane says, you're welcome. But Jane hasn't been there the whole time. No, instead of that, Bob's been there doing all the grunt work. Now, if all of us were honest, we would say that our pride sort of welled up there. And we weren't real humble and applauding also. For Jane. Because the pride is what we fight every day. Paul continues that we cannot depend on this prideful wisdom of man to live our life as Christians. We have to depend on the power of God to know what is his will and to know his truth. There are many people that have multi-million dollar businesses that we might know or we might be one of those people. We started off with nothing and the next thing you know, we're incredibly wealthy and prosperous. If we know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then we're going to know that that didn't come by us, but that came by Him. 
and we might be gracious enough to thank him every day for it. But the scripture says in James that all good things come from the Father of lights. Everything that happens to us, whether we acknowledge it or not, comes from God. It does not come from our own doing. We are creatures. We're not the creator. And so, these folks that, that are just successful, 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 where, where do they think? Who gets the glory for that? That we, my husband and I have this couple, good friends of ours, when we were in seminary the first time, um, and his name was George. It was George and Sally, and they were just incredible people, just love the Lord, awesome people. <clears throat> anyway, they one day we heard their story. We were in a small group with them, and we heard their story, and George shared that when he was young, he got out of high school, and uh, he said, you know, I didn't know what I want to do, so I went and started shucking oysters at some little oyster factory on, on Chesapeake Bay. He said, I just started shucking oysters, and I figured I could do this all my life. Well, when, by the time we met George, not only had George been shucking oysters, but George owned the oyster plant that he started working at, and then he opened up many other plants all up and down the coast up there. And George was a multimillionaire. And he would share in the group. He said, but this is the problem. I've got this problem. And, you know, Robert and I, we were in seminary. We had two children. You know, we were praying for rent. (laughs) And and so we are looking, you know, as young 20-somethings, we're looking at George thinking, what is your problem? And George said, this is the problem. The problem is... Every time I give away lots and lots and lots of this money, because I know that God has given me the money to further his kingdom. But this is my problem. Every time I give it away, I keep getting lots and lots more back. And he says, it is just driving me crazy. And, you know, of course, Robert and I are thinking, wow, what a problem, huh? That's a <laughs> we thought that we were thinking. Well, let me tell you the wonderful thing about George and Sally is they paid for our rent the whole three years. We were there. We never had to worry about rent. You see, George knew that God used him. He used him to spread the gospel. And that's why he gave George all that money. It wasn't so that he could enjoy himself every second of his life, although he did. But it's so that he could further the kingdom. As Paul opens our text today, he brings the problem of division, of pride, right up to the forefront. He says to them, what is this division? What are you saying? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. What are you saying? There was no doctrinal problem in Corinth with Apollos. Apollos was a a Gentile who became a a Christian, who became a leader, who became a minister in the church. And there was no division as far as doctrine was concerned. And, of course, not with Peter or Paul. So that was not the problem. The problem was they were breaking up into little groups, little cliques. Cliques do not belong in the church. 
Now, I'm not talking about having your small group and your friends and people you like to hang out with. I'm talking about putting one leader up against another and saying, well, this is the leader I like to follow because I feel like they really, they teach Jesus better. Paul says that's not to be in the church. That kind of division is not to be in the church because it creates jealousy and it creates envy and it splits the church. And it's not of God. And so he tells them, basically, that their pride of trying to own their own little group is going to stunt not only their growth, but the growth of the church. Later on in Corinthians, we also see where he addresses, the, they're talking about gifts. They all had gifts. It was a very prosperous church. They had amazing gifts of the Spirit, wisdom and discernment and knowledge and faith and healings and miracles and tongues, interpretation of tongues and prophecy. Find that in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 about the gifts of the Spirit. They all had these amazing gifts. And they were actually building themselves up as to who had the greater gift. <clears throat> I remember that when, when, we, um, when we lost our son, Joseph, I remember that people did amazing things for us. I mean... You know, I think back sometimes, and I just, I, I'm sure I did not thank, I'm sure I did not thank everybody that did things for us. But it was amazing. But there's one thing that stood out in my mind, and I thought about it in between this, the 8 o'clock sermon and this sermon. And it was this woman who came and knocked on the door one day, and it had been about two weeks since Joseph had died, and she knocked on the door, and I went to the door, and she said, Hi, I'm here to clean out your refrigerator. She had, she had a ministry of helps. The Lord told her, Martha's refrigerator is ridiculous. They can't even get food out of it because it's so jammed in there. And so she came in and she organized the food for me. And after it was over, she gave me a hug and she said bye. It, it was the most humble thing, number one, that, that I had to receive. And number two, that she did. Paul says all of this division and jealousy and strife is pride. It's pride. It's personal pride. It's not humility. In Galatians, we see where Paul tells the, the Galatian people that there are the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And remember that Paul, in his opening here, in the letter we read today, the text we read today, he says today, you're too fleshy. You're too fleshy to receive meat. Not even now. And you've had a period of time to grow, and you haven't grown. You're still babies. Just imagine a little baby sitting up with diapers on and then a big long beard. I had a picture that I've had for a long, long time. I can't find it, but it was just the greatest picture. It showed this. The church was not growing spiritually. Instead, their pride was growing, not their humility. With humility being the fruit of the Spirit that grows in our lives, through submission to Jesus Christ, through confession of sin, 
through forgiveness, forgiving each other. When somebody does something that really hurts us, ask the Lord to remind us to forgive that person instantly. You might not feel like it. Chances are you're not going to feel like it. But I do know this, that when we do that, then that fruit of humility grows in us and it defeats that pride because we we get prideful because we say they don't deserve to be forgiven they've hurt me terribly they've done terrible things to me my my parents have done terrible things to me my my friends my spouse my siblings they've hurt me they've caused me great pain and anguish that's pride Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we could crucify the pride that we're going to have to fight every day. It's so easy to come up. Paul concludes our text today by saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God that causes the growth. If we are asking the Lord to grow the fruit of humility in our lives, then we will be focused on Jesus. And we will be focused on his mission for our life and for the body of Christ, for the church, here at St. Luke's. What is our mission as a body? Well, our mission as individuals and as the body is to tell people about Jesus. That's what our mission is. Our mission is to go next door, maybe right next to the person next to you in the pew, and to tell them how much Jesus loves them. To go down the street and to tell the good news that a Savior has come into the world to save us so that we can crucify that pride that is in our lives. Down the street maybe to another city, maybe to another country, maybe to another continent. When we're focused on Jesus and asking him to grow that humility in our lives, we're going to hear the call. We're going to hear the call to do the ministry in the body of Christ here that God wants us to do. But if we're focused on our fleshly needs and our fleshly desires, we're not going to hear that call. I know that by experience. I know that there are times that I can't understand why God does the things he does. Lord, why did you let this happen? This is so terrible. How am I going to grow in you? When our son died, I could not even believe that the Lord did not hear my prayer and bring him back to life. And I thought, I'll never teach, I'll never be able to teach Scripture again. Because how can I, how can I teach Scripture when, when God has done this terrible thing? Well, you know, God in his mercy loved me enough. I had enough people praying for me and all that he showed me. You know, Joseph's days were numbered. I had the exact amount of days that he was going to live. And he also showed me at Joseph's funeral... He showed me, he had over 500 people, most of them were young people, and they would come up to me and tell me about how Joseph always told them about the love of Christ. And why don't you come hang out with me at Happening this weekend that we get together and we just love up on each other. 
And so I saw the work that he had done in that short little period of time. See, we don't always understand why God does things. But when we're praying and asking him to make us humble, to, to, to tell us who we are in Christ, then we're going to be focused on Jesus. And we're not going to be focused on ourselves, especially if we feel like failures. Especially if we feel like we've let people down. Especially if we feel all the things that make us feel bad. When we're focused on Jesus and growing that character of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, then we're going to be able to crucify that pride when when it pops up its head. We do have a huge mission. It is the Great Commission. And every single one of us are stunted in our growth with pride. It's, the church needs to grow up. And this is what Paul is telling the Corinthians, and I think this is what the Spirit tells us today, is that we need to be really serious about our walk with the Lord. Are we his disciples? Are we people of God? And to pray. Lord, I pray that you'd reveal the pride that's in me so that I can crucify it in your name on the cross and then grow that fruit, that fruit of humility, all of the fruit in my life so that when people see me, they see you, Jesus, and I know who I am. I'm going to close uh, this sermon with a prayer by... um, Andrew Murray um, in a great little book of his. So let us pray. Lord, I pray that of your great goodness you would make known to me and take from my heart every kind and form and degree of pride, whether it be from evil spirits or my own corrupt nature. And that you would awaken in me the deepest depth and truth of the humility that can make me capable of your light and Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus. Amen.